0: If you're able, please open God's word with me and turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We'll begin at verse 11 and read all the way through verse 19. And so again, it's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. May the Lord implant his eternal word into your hearts. Hebrews 7.11. We read, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being Changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man hath officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there rises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of the weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect while on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O oh Lord, we look now to your word, not just as a treasure trove of truth, but as the very source of life. For we know that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we ask this evening that as we turn our attentions to the preaching and to the receiving of your word, that you would by the Spirit feed us and fill us with that which is heavenly and eternal. Nourish and refresh and sanctify your church, we pray. Open the eyes of those who are unbelieving, those who have yet to know you. O Lord, help them to recognize their state of hunger. That they might in turn look to the one, Jesus Christ, who is himself the very bread of life. Who is able not only to supply and sustain, but save. We pray all these things in the name of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Men. Revelation, angels, the land of rest and the Levitical priesthood are some of the examples that serve to highlight the recurring motif and theme of this epistle. That Christ is greater, that he is infinitely superior. As we slowly make our way through this book and as we approach the pinnacle of this mountain of a letter, what we'll find as we get to the top is the writer's message that the new covenant is better than that of the old covenant in chapter 8. That the new covenant is greater to that of the old on the basis of a greater priesthood. On the basis or established upon a better promise and On the grounds of a perfect sacrifice. And all of these things weave together in the person of Christ. Stated in the negative. The old administration which was at the end of the day. Both inadequate and temporary in nature. Was necessarily to be superseded by the full. And effective and eternal work of God the son Jesus. And so again, as we make our way through this letter and as we draw closer to the summit found in chapter 8, what we'll be specifically examining in today's passage is that this new covenant involves the supersession of the old covenant's priesthood with the new and superior priesthood of Christ. And by comparing the old Levitical priesthood to the new and far greater priesthood of Christ, The goal for us tonight is not only to see how and why this change from the old to the new was necessary, but much more that we would obtain a greater and deeper understanding of who our Messiah is, that we would clearly understand what Christ has done and what he is doing right now as we live out our Christian lives under the new covenant which is to say by implication that it's simply not enough for you to merely say with your mouth that you're a Christian and then move on with your life thinking that all is well and good because that's too easy. Anyone can do that. Anyone can say those words, I'm a Christian and think that's it. I've seen it and I'm sure you've seen it as well. And so the writer's objective for us and for you tonight is for you to not hang your eternal security by a thread made up of words, but that each and every Christian believer in here tonight to be established on something greater and on something more sure than just words. This to say that the writer's main concern for you tonight is for you to understand and know without a shadow of a doubt to clearly see why and how you're a Christian. He wants for you to understand what Christ has done and what he is doing even right now, again, as you live out your Christian lives under this new covenant. To know how and what this new priesthood achieved for you in Christ Jesus is. Now, before I get too far ahead of myself, the writer accomplishes, This very message, the one I just presented, the superiority of Christ's priesthood by doing two things, by presenting two very simple points. He achieves this by first demonstrating that there was a need for a new and better priesthood, that the need for a new priesthood was to be expected and looked forward to, and second, that the Need for a new and better priesthood had already been fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And these two points will serve as our outline tonight. So if I can simplify this for you note takers out there. If I can give you an abbreviated version of these two points. I would say point number one is the need expected. And point number two the need fulfilled. Again, point number one is the need expected, which is verse 11 to 12. And point number two, the need fulfilled, verse 13 through 19. Now look down with me to verse 11, and let's read this again. We read, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what we find here in verse 11 is what grammarians refer to as the unreal condition. Meaning, we can read and understand this verse like this. We can read it like this. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, which it isn't, which could never be the case, but for the sake of argument, let's just say that it was, then what further need was there that another priest should arise? And the answer, there wouldn't. If the Levitical priesthood had accomplished the intended goal in bringing about perfection, then there would be no need for another priest. And the logic here is pretty simple and clear. But because that's not the case, because perfection could never have been obtained through the levitical priesthood because perfection could never have been obtained through the law as we clearly see all throughout scripture this then necessitated that a new priesthood had to come you follow now what the what rather now what does the writer mean here by the word perfection, because this word is something that kind of catches your attention when you read this word. What what, what does the author mean by perfection here? And some of you might be thinking that he might be referring to perhaps a moral perfection or maybe a sinless perfection or perhaps a, a perfect righteousness. But rather, perfection here is not referring to a state of flawlessness but rather, the arrival at a desired end or the reaching of a specific goal. The word that's used here in the Greek for perfection, teleosis, is where we get our English word for teleology. Now, within the world of philosophy and ethics, teleology refers to that doctrine of design and purpose. The concept of teleology is the accomplishing of the very thing that you were designed to do or be. For example, it would be right for us to say that the teleology of humanity is the worship of God. We were created by God to worship God. And so when we worship God, we are at that very moment at the height of our humanity as we're fulfilling the very purpose that God's intended and created and designed us to carry out. Now getting that, now shifting that over back to verse 11, perfection, or as some of your translations might have, completion, is referring to none other than salvation. In other words, The God-ordained, the God-designed goal for the priesthood was to bring about the full salvation to God's people with the complete forgiveness of sin. It was to bring about free access to God and total acceptance with God. But recognizing that there's a need for a new priesthood by necessity indicated that the old priesthood could not itself accomplish that very salvation to which it pointed to. And so the very fact that there existed another priesthood that was to come, or specifically as prophesied by David in Psalm 110, testifies that the old priesthood was not only imperfect, but that it was also temporary and transitory. Meaning that the Levitical priesthood, with all of its sacrifices and rituals, with all of its bells and smells, was never able to perfectly fulfill its intended purposes that it was designed to bring about. And so when the writer asks by writing, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, then why is there a need for another priest? He's proposing to his readers, specifically his Jewish readers, if the intended goal of full salvation, if it could have come through the Levitical priesthood, which again it couldn't have due to the sins of the priest and to the imperfections of the offerings that were made, then why in the world would the Bible talk about the need for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not called according to the order of Aaron? And he's asking these very pointed questions or this very pointed question because he wants for his readers, specifically again his Jewish readers, to think, think about it, consider this, dwell on this. Now there were some Jews back in antiquity such as the Dead Sea sect or some people would refer to them as the Qumran community or the Essenes who believed that there had to be not one, but two messiahs. The reason for why they believed that there had to be two messiahs was because they saw in the Old Testament that there had to be a kingly messiah from the line of David and a priestly messiah from the line of Aaron. In studying their Old Testaments, and they were avid students of Scripture, they deduced that there would come a Messiah who had to be a king and a separate Messiah who had to be a priest. Because in their own understanding of Scripture, they considered it a sheer impossibility for the coming Messiah to be one single person. They thought to themselves, how can one person be from the line of David who was from the tribe of Judah while simultaneously also be from the line of Aaron who was from the tribe of Levi? How can one person be a king while simultaneously function as a priest? And so they postulated that there had to be two messianic figures. But what the writer is doing here in this verse is that he's saying that that kind of thinking isn't necessary here. That that kind of thinking isn't necessary because there actually exists one messianic figure who meets and fulfills both of these requirements perfectly. There exists a king who has arisen, not from the priesthood of Aaron, but has arisen, verse 11, if you look down again, according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, if you can recall with me, Melchizedek, prior to the book of Hebrews, is only mentioned two times in the whole of Scripture. That's not a lot of times. It's only two more than me. The first time that he's ever mentioned is in Genesis 14, 18, which reads, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram. Abram, after coming back from a military conquest and defeating kings near Sodom, seemingly out of nowhere, we find Melchizedek enter into the picture of redemptive history. Now, within this scene in Genesis 14, we read that he blesses Abraham, to which Abram responds to him with tithes. He gives him offerings. And within this text, Genesis 14, the writer simply describes Melchizedek as the king of Salem, the priest of the God Most High. And just as suddenly he enters into the scene of history, he disappears again without a trace. And for the next hundreds of years, we hear nothing of him, no reference, no description, no nothing until David makes one last mention of him in Psalm 110 verse 4. Where David, as God's mouthpiece, writes that the Messiah who is to come will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. To which again we find no mention of until we come finally here to the book of Hebrews. So the question is why? Why is that? What's the point of all this, and why bring up and make reference to this seemingly obscure and insignificant character named Melchizedek? Perhaps the better question to ask is, what's so special about Melchizedek that the writer of Hebrews felt the need to write him back into the history of redemption, and then also to use him to demonstrate the necessity of the new priesthood? And I'll tell you the answer. Here's the reason. It's because Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, was also simultaneously the priest of God. In other words, Melchizedek symbolically served as a pointer toward a priesthood that was to be entirely unique. A priesthood that stood outside of the priesthood of Aaron, that stood outside the tribe of Levi, and that stood outside of the law. A priesthood that's categorically different as it stands in a league of its own. It's one that is of a wholly other nature. This to say that Melchizedek, who was both King and priest served as a type of Christ, as a priestly king. That there exists an office of a royal priesthood, a dignified priesthood that's far greater than that of Aaron. Which again is to say that not only is Jesus a high priest, but he's far much more than that. He's a kingly high priest. That he's the long-awaited Messiah who is both king and priest. And so what the writer is saying here, again, especially to his Jewish audience, is there's no need to look back to the Levitical priesthood. There's no need to look for two Messiahs. There's no need to go back to the Aaronic priest, but rather look to the Messiah. Verse 11. Who should rise. According to the priesthood. Not of Aaron. But of Melchizedek. More specifically. Look to the one. Whose name is Jesus. The son of God. To him. Who is both. King and priest. Don't look back. Don't go back. Don't look. To the Levitical priesthood. For perfection. Nor for salvation. But look. Past it. Look. Over it, look to the greater priesthood that's been promised by God and found in Christ. Verse 12, we read, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Because the law instituted the priesthood, for there to be any change in the priesthood naturally necessitated a change of the law. Now again, this is pretty self-explanatory. But as we consider this verse, what we do need to be very careful of here is on how we understand this verse. The change of the law that's mentioned of here in verse 12 does not mean in any way that the nature of the law has changed. As if the righteousness or justice or the holiness of God has somehow changed or shifted from the old to the new. Because, perhaps to your own surprise, because there exist people out there who actually take this verse out of context and morph it and shape it into becoming a kind of proof text to somehow claim that the God of the old covenant differs from the God of the new. That he who once Uh, was the God of wrath has become and developed and evolved into the God of love in the new. That God's morality has somehow shifted and changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New. And that thinking is absolutely wrong because we at this church confess, Hebrews 13.8, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what the author is intending to show here in verse 12 is that although the regulations concerning the Levitical priesthood have passed with the passing of that priesthood, he's saying that the essence of the law, which is love and obedience, the moral law of God, not only continues in force today, but it's made possible of fulfillment, not by works, but by the very power of the gospel. It's made possible by faith in Christ Jesus. Stated in another way, in the words of Philip Hughes, he writes this, and now get this, pay attention to this. He writes, For the Christian, in accordance with the promises of the new covenant, the law ceases to be an external instrument of condemnation, and it then becomes an internal principle of the will of God, which, through the gracious enabling of the Holy Spirit, Reborn humanity delights to perform. So the question that you might have is, then what exactly changes in the law? What exactly is the difference here then? The difference is not in the essence of the law. It's not in the morality of the law. But what changes is is its purpose. Power of condemnation over those who are made free in Christ. Verse 13, we read. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. From which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Immediately following the writer's point on the need or on the necessity of a new priesthood due to the shortcomings of the old in accomplishing the salvation to which it pointed to. After establishing the expectation of a new priesthood, the writer shifts from the need expected over to the need fulfilled, which is the second point of tonight's message. We find here in verses 13 and 14 the writer clearly states and he makes very plain what is already publicly known, more specifically, that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Now, what we need to understand here is that for a Jew, especially for a Jew in this context, in the context of Hebrews, trying to find every reason to abandon the faith and return back to Judaism, The very fact that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah and not from Levi was no doubt a major point of concern. It bothered them. They would have thought to themselves, this Jesus cannot possibly be the Messiah. Because how can someone who's from the tribe of Judah even be considered to be a priest? That's not normal. How can Jesus possibly be the Messiah if he lacks the proper credentials on what I believe a Messiah should have? So they're asking, what am I to do here then, Mr. Writer of Hebrews? What am I supposed to believe here, God? And so the question that presents itself here is should Jesus have been born as a Levite? Was it a bad luck of the draw that Jesus happened to be born in the tribe of Judah? Did God make a mistake here? And the answer to that is no. And the reason for why I say no, and the key to unpacking the reason for why I say no, is found in the word arose. Arose. Or as some of your translations might have, I think many of your translations has descended, arose or descended in verse 14. And the word that's used here for arose or descended is a word that's often associated with messianic prophecies. And in many ways, this word reflects the the same meaning that we find in Hebrews chapter 2.14, that Jesus partook of flesh and blood, referring to his incarnation. In other words, just as Jesus partook, or He made the conscious and volitional choice to become incarnate, just as He chose to to take upon Himself flesh and blood, He likewise willingly and consciously ordained it right and good to come from the tribe, not of Levi, but of Judah. He arose from Judah, not by mistake, but because the word of God is clear to tell us that the Messiah would come from the seed of David, Jeremiah 23.5. That the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. All this to say that for Jesus to arise or descend from Judah was not by chance nor by mistake. But this was very deliberate. For Jesus to arise from Judah was not to his disadvantage, but rather to the very fulfillment of what God had promised in ushering in the Savior, the Messiah King. And so that clarifies and it checks off that box of a requirement of the Messiah being a king, the Messiah's kingship. But with that said, the Jewish audience who's taking that all of this in was probably now thinking, okay, I get that. I'll accept that. It's a very good answer. But what about his priesthood? I get the half of the king, but what about the other half of his priesthood? Again, if we look down at our text, the writer of Hebrews is very clear. He's not trying to trick anybody, nor is he trying to pull any strings. He's not trying to pull a fast one here. He's not even trying to hide or spare any detail regarding Jesus's credentials. He writes that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, verse 13, from which no man has officiated at the altar. In other words, he's also confessing and agreeing That Jesus comes from a line in which no priest has ever existed nor will ever produce. He's not shooting himself in the foot here. But in presenting this, the writer by implication is posing the question to his Jewish readers and perhaps even poking at them and even prodding them a little bit by asking them, well, is this a problem for you that Jesus is from Judah? Is Jesus being from the tribe of Judah an issue for you? Would you consider his Judaic identity to be a blot on his messianic resume to which the Jewish audience would have no doubt responded? They would have said, duh, of course it is. That's exactly the problem that we have here. To which the writer would then respond in verse 15, look down with me, he writes, and it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but what? According to the power of an endless life. The writer responds by saying, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think it's also evident. It's obvious. It's public knowledge that Jesus arose from Judah, the tribe of which Moses spoke nothing about concerning priesthood. I get that. But it's for you to know that what's even more obvious, verse 15, what's even far more evident Is that if there were to come another priest, more specifically, if there were to come a greater and superior priest, this priest must arise not according to the law of Moses, not according to a fleshly commandment or a physical or legal requirement that's already proved itself to be unable to obtain perfection as we have already established. But this new priesthood must arise in the likeness of Melchizedek. This priesthood must arise according to the power of an endless and indestructible life. And the writer is submitting here that the priest has already risen in the likeness of Melchizedek. Another priesthood has already risen, not according to the law of Moses, but one that is according to the likeness of Melchizedek. And what the writer is trying to demonstrate here for his readers and for us by placing the greater to the lesser is that unlike the old priesthood that's dependent upon the one who is dependent upon one's ancestry or dependent upon whose father is, this new covenant or rather this new priesthood is dependent upon something far greater. This new and far greater priesthood is one that is established according to the power of an indestructible life. Not, again, according to an ancestry, but according to God. This to say that when God instituted the priesthood back in Exodus and Leviticus, The purpose for Israel wasn't for them to simply look to the Levitical priesthood as their final hope. That's not the final thing. But rather, it was God's design for them to look past the inherently flawed priesthood and look forward to a far better and far superior priesthood that was to come. They were to recognize that the problem with the priesthood was the very same exact problem that they had when it came to the law that there was just too much humanity in it. That it was plagued through and through with sin. And so what the writer is saying here that when the greater and far superior priest comes, which he has, that he must arise not In the likeness of Aaron. But of Melchizedek. Not according to the physical requirements of the law. But of what? According to the power of an endless life. And so what's happening here? What exactly is the writer doing here? What the writer is doing is that he's. Gathering all the facts and he's. Gathering all the qualifications and all of the credentials. He's grabbing all the attention from his audience. And he's carefully drawing everyone in. Not to fix their eyes on a specific covenant per se. But he's redirecting everyone to fix their gaze upon a person. To fix their gaze upon one single messianic king priest. Christ Jesus, who is the Son of God. Now what was intentionally flawed in the old priesthood is now gloriously remedied with a better priesthood established upon the Son of God who was raised from the dead. While the old priesthood was founded upon the law and on ancestry, we find here that the greater priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, is established upon his own indestructible and eternal life. This to say, friends, that Jesus' priesthood is insoluble, indissoluble. It's endless. It's, It's forever. It stretches as far as east is from the west. His priesthood can never change nor ever be destroyed. It's here to stay. Thus, verse 17, we read, for he testifies, you are a priest. For how long? Forever. You are priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Now as we study the priesthood of Jesus. As important as it is for us to recognize that Jesus' priesthood will never cease. It's all the more important for us to recognize the reason for why it will never cease. The quality or the eternal nature of Jesus' priesthood. The indestructibility of his priesthood finds root in what he has accomplished in his death and resurrection. One commentator puts it best he writes, He who died once for us now lives, never to die again. The crown has followed the cross, and it is this power of an indestructible life which now guarantees that he is indeed our priest. Forever. Unbelieving friends who are here with us tonight. Is this not a savior. Who is worth trusting. Is this not a messiah who is dependable. Is this not a king who is worth praising. And giving your lives over unto. If there's any of you in here tonight who have yet to place your life and trust and faith in Christ Jesus, I implore you to come to him tonight. I plead with you to come to him who is both king and priest, to the one who is both reliable and dependable, not only in certain moments in life, not only for certain seasons in life, but forever, for eternity. Verse 18, we read, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We read here that the former commandment or the old law in the old Levitical priesthood has been annulled and set aside. And the writer provides for us two fundamental reasons As for why that is, he writes first because of its weakness and second because of its unprofitableness or uselessness. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's pretty harsh to put it that way. But the reason for why the writer paints the old priesthood in such a negative light and the reason for why he uses such strong language here is not to say that the old covenant was wrong per se, But because the law could not bring about what it sought, what it was designed to bring about. Not because the law itself was somehow imperfect as we confess that the law is holy, righteous, and good, Romans 7. But rather because the old priesthood who handled and administered the law were weak, fleshly, carnal, and mortal, and sinful. The old priesthood failed and could have never accomplished what it was designed by God to do because sinful men were mediating on behalf of other sinful men. Hence its weakness and uselessness. Hence the reason for why the old priesthood demanded and necessitated and expected another greater and superior priesthood to come. You see that? so we find here that God took the old administration, the old priesthood. He grabbed it and he set it aside to usher in the new. To bring about verse 19, we read, a better hope. And the writer here in one aspect is pleading with his readers not to revert back into that old and imperfect system. He's warning his readers, his Jewish brothers and sisters, that if they still believe that they could attain perfection through the old law, through the old priesthood, then they're absolutely damned that they're doomed and gone. That to revert back to the old law and priesthood would be to them, to do so would be to do that to their own detriment and to their own condemnation. He's saying, don't do that don't go back Now as we draw to the end of our time here together tonight I understand that there's a lot of information here tonight it's a lot of information So I kept telling myself as I was driving here it's a lot of information But I also understand that with all this information that there might be some of you in here who may be thinking, what does this have anything to do with me? What does all this talk about the old and new covenant, this old and new priesthood? How in the world does this help me? How is this relevant to me? What does any of this have to do with me today, right now, as I live my life? To which I would respond, Everything. Just because we live under the new covenant and just because we're not a part of that old Levitical priesthood does not mean that there aren't some of you in here right now still trying to cling onto that old covenant as it were. Still trying to will your way into perfection. Does this describe some of you? Trying to claw your way into heaven. Trying to earn salvation by your own merits and self-righteousness. Thinking to yourself, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to think. Just tell me what to say. And I'll do it. I'll do that. I'll do whatever I need to do to save myself. There are some of you in here who think that. All the while, God's simple message for you brothers and sisters here tonight is not for you to be better or to do more, but for you to simply look to the better hope. Look to the better covenant. Look to the better promises and the better priesthood of God. Look to the better hope that's manifested in the gospel of Christ, in the person and work of Jesus himself. Beloved, the old has been set aside. And the better hope has been brought in. Praise the Lord. And I'll end with this. Notice at the end of verse 19. I want you to notice what a great privilege we have. And what kind of access we gain. And what kind of access we're given through this better hope. We read that it's through this better hope. Through which we draw near to God. Brothers and sisters, oh, what a hope this is, is it not? What great news and security we have in the one who is our Savior, in the one who is our Messiah, our superior King Priest, Jesus. Praise be to God, brothers and sisters. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that in our own sinfulness we have destroyed and have often degraded ourselves by neglecting him who has brought upon us a better hope through which we draw near to you. O Lord, we pray that by the Spirit you would forever remind us that if we're to ever be saved, that it will never be by any effort that we can offer or do, but solely by the undeserved goodness, the abundant mercy, and the exceeding riches of grace found in your Son. O Lord, remind us that if we're ever to be saved, that it would never be by our own merits, nor by somehow accomplishing salvation, which can never be done by ourselves, but that we would simply look, that we would simply look, to him who is our King Priest. We pray these things in the name of God the Son. By the power of God the Spirit. into to the glory of God the Father. Amen.